0: Rick. All right. Hey, let's pray together again. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you haven't left us to wonder uh, who you are or what you're like. You've told us through your word. So thank you. We pray for your help now as we come to it, that you would uh, teach us. Would you help us to see, Lord, where we are blind? We pray you would convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. We pray you'd comfort us where we need comfort. Lord, would you have your way this morning um, by your spirit? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, good morning again, and it's so good to be with you. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and just want to welcome you again to FBC on a special day, our fall kickoff. We're really excited about what God has in store this fall. I want to invite you to join me in John chapter 20, uh, verse 19, as we just heard read aloud. Uh, We're walking through the gospel of John together, and we've been doing that for some time now, but uh, we're nearing the end. Okay, there are only three weeks left in our study of the Gospel of John, which is kind of hard to believe because I believe it's been since uh, February of 2021 that we've been in this study. So it's been quite some time. Uh, And the last three weeks of this series, we're combining into kind of a mini-series, a series within a series, Inception Reference, that we're calling uh, Now What? Okay, the end of John, Now What?, because we've seen uh, together so much in the Gospel of John, the teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and then the, the death of Jesus and now the, the resurrection of Jesus. And a natural question is, now what? Right? What, what happens next? And that's something that certainly the, the early disciples would be wondering as well. Like, what does this mean? Jesus is alive. And so we're trying to bridge that gap, right? From these events in the first century to our lives today, so, what are the implications? Because even though the Gospel of John is ending, right? Chapter twenty-one is the last chapter. The, the Jesus movement is just beginning, right? And we see it explode onto the scene uh, into the ancient world and throughout history. And so, we have to think about for us individually and together as a church. Now, what? So, we're going to be talking a lot about this thing called the church this fall. Jesus sends his spirit uh, to fill his people, that's us, the church, to be about his work and his business in the world. And so we're going to explore that together this fall. And I like how this headline puts it. Uh, It says, your weird church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. Your weird church, that's us, Okay, point number one, we're a weird church. Every church is, right? Cool church is not the goal, just real weird church and all our quirks and all our uh, mess. We come before the Lord and ask that he uses us in his world. Your weird church is God's plan A. And there is no plan B. The church is God's plan for the world to reach the nations with the gospel, to redeem the world, to see men and women come to know him and worship him. And So in a few weeks, we're kicking off a study that we're calling uh, Love Your Church, and we're using a book by the same title, Love Your Church, that we uh, have a copy for, for everybody here. So we today want to send you home with a copy of this book. We're not starting the sermon series for a couple weeks, but we want to get this in your hands now. You can get started reading it if you'd like. Uh, there's a copy for everyone on the table. Also, if you prefer an e-version or you want an e-version in addition to the hard copy, uh, there's a sign-up sheet you can give us your name and your email, and we'll send you a link to download the Kindle version or whatever you'd like. Uh, But please grab a copy today. If you don't grab it, Darren Shackelford will come to your house this week (laughs) and put it in your mailbox. Okay. So just save yourself the time. We're all busy people. Darren's busy. Let's, we don't, yeah. So just grab one today. It'll make it a whole lot easier please. And what we're going to be doing is, again, the sermon series is going to be going through the Love Your Church material. Our community groups are going to be going through the Love Your Church material um, because we want everybody to really uh, come around this idea of, what does it mean to be the church? to raise our awareness together of the joy of being the church, of the calling and the mission of the church, like why we're here and what we're about. Uh, What does it mean to be a member of a church, to belong to the church? And so we're going to be talking about all of that in the months ahead. And so we want you to grab a copy of that book, hopefully join a community group. You'll have an opportunity to talk to Randy on the lawn about a group if you're not a part of a group. Um, So really excited to jump into that this fall. But... We're still in John today. So we have a few weeks ramping up to this, but it really, I mean, the end of the gospel of John really is the perfect transition into all of this talk about the church, right? Because wrapping up the study of John, we see how the resurrection of Jesus has this massive ripple effect out into the world, right? With those first disciples going on in history and even to us today, part of the church today, we're still part of this story. So remember where we've been. We've seen Jesus arrested. We've seen him uh, on trial. We've seen his crucifixion. We've seen his death, his burial. And then on the first day of the week, Mary and then some other disciples go to the tomb and they find it empty. And again, if you know, John, our brother John, won the foot race to the tomb. He's like, Good job, John. We're proud of you, if you remember that from last week. And Jesus then appears to Mary, resurrected, alive. And along with Mary and the other disciples, we're left to wonder what in the world do we make of this? An empty tomb, a resurrected Jesus. They weren't expecting this. It surprises us, and it changes everything. And so this morning in the end of uh, the gospel of John chapter 20, uh, we're going to see three implications of the resurrection, three shifts that take place because of the resurrection. Look again at how the passage starts, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, remember where we are. This is that first Easter Sunday. That morning, they found the empty tomb. And now it's the evening. They're together. Verse 19 tells us they're afraid. They're behind locked doors, right? They don't know what's going to happen to them. They're not sure what to make of this empty tomb business yet. Uh, They're afraid that the Jewish leaders are going to come for them the same way they came for Jesus, and they're going to lose their lives. And Jesus uh, somehow comes and stands among them in the room, even though the doors are locked. And so we see that his his resurrection body is, is noticeably different from his earthly body. And he he stands among them, at which point it'd be a pretty wild dinner party going on. And he says, he says, peace be with you. And he shows them his, his hands and his side, leaving no doubt that it's him. And they're overjoyed to see him again. Now we're going to zoom in here for a moment on the way Jesus greets his disciples in verse 19. You see what he says to them in verse 19, his first words to them, peace be with you. In one sense, that's not surprising. It's a standard Jewish greeting uh, in that day. Still today, many uh, will greet themselves that way in the Jewish world. And perhaps they weren't really thinking much about the greeting, the words he said, they're just so amazed to see him again. But notice he repeats and in verse 21, a second time again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And if you fast forward a little bit down to verse 26, when the disciples are gathered at another time, Jesus greets them the same way, peace be with you. Now you gotta remember repetition is the Bible's highlighter. So when you see that multiple times here, it's telling us something, this is significant. So the first thing we need to see in the text is that Jesus brings us peace, not fear. Jesus brings his disciples a word of peace, which could mean, of course, the absence of conflict, the absence of hostility, but also in the Jewish mind, peace or shalom was a much more comprehensive idea, the idea of well-being, of everything being in its place, of things being as they should be, of relationships being restored with God, with others. It's a word of peace. There's a few angles to this that we really should chew on here for a minute. I mean, think about it. The the first thing he says to his disciples, the first words, peace be with you. I I don't know about you, but if that was me, I don't know if I would have led with that. Okay, if you, know, if you know how the story's gone so far, right, isn't that a little bit surprising? I mean, think about the sequence of events so far. He has his disciples, his, his massive following, and then he, he's arrested, and he's crucified, and where are the disciples? They're gone, Right? They run away. They abandon him. They're like, okay, you're on your own. Like, game over. We're going home. I guess you're not the guy. You know, off, off we go. They abandon him. Peter even denies that he knows him. Peter denies that he ever knew Jesus. And Jesus appears for the first time here now with his disciples. And what does he say? Peace? I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't scold them? Or, or, give them a stern talking to at least. You're like, I'm back. And I told you this was going to happen. And you didn't believe. Peter, what in the world was that back there? Are you kidding me? Do better. Oh, and even Frodo went with Sam to the very end. And you're going to be with me my Come on. Any, would anybody maybe respond that way? Guys, where were you? Guys, you all left. Shame. Dishonor on you. Dishonor on your cow. Right? <laughs> But he doesn't. He doesn't rehearse their failures. He doesn't recap their shame. He doesn't lead with a rebuke. The first thing out of his mouth is peace. See, some of us have this picture of God where you say, he, he just can't wait to give me an I told you so. He just can't wait to drop the hammer on me. Right, I've been away for a while. I know I've messed up, but I know when I come home, I'm going to get a talking to. And yeah, maybe we'll get to the mercy and grace part, but he's going to lead with the drop of the hammer. He's going to lead with the, the searing comments, the I told you shows. But do you see the heart of Jesus just bursting off the page for his disciples? Do you see the mercy of Jesus, the love of Jesus for his disciples, for you? He's like, guys, yeah, we'll have some conversations, but I just, I'm so glad to be with you. Peace be with you. That's how he leads. Reminds us of what Paul would later write in Romans chapter five. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the heart of the gospel? That if we believe in Jesus and put our faith in him, we have peace with God, restored relationship with God. No longer hostility between us and God because Jesus in his death, he bore all the consequences of our sin. He died for us. And in his resurrection, we're made alive with him. And so our our relationship with God, which was broken by our sin and our rebellion, Romans tells us that we were enemies of God. We were running the opposite direction from God. And God in his grace and in his mercy sent his son to die for us that we might be reconciled to him and have peace with God. So this is this peace that Jesus brings us is it's between us and God. This reminds us of the gospel. But now also think about in the sense of how the disciples and how we can navigate the world, an uncertain world, right? An uncertain future that maybe is scary. He says peace to them. And and the context, right, is they're afraid. They're they're behind locked doors. Like the Jewish leaders, they're gonna come for us just like they came for you. And so we're gonna lose our lives. And Jesus brings a word of peace, not fear. Reminding them of of his resurrection power, his victory over death. The disciples of Jesus can trust God and have, have peace in his power, no matter the circumstances, no matter what comes our way. And that's not a promise that we won't face danger because we will, and the disciples did. Many of them went to their death and were persecuted for their commitment to Christ. So it's not a promise that we'll be spared earthly danger, but it is a promise that no matter the earthly danger we face, our eternity is secure. Our life is hidden with Christ. Eternal life is ours in, in his name. I mean, so what's left to fear, right? If you're reconciled to God and have peace with him, And death, our great enemy is conquered. What's left to fear? Right? Death, where is your sting? What can man do to me? It can bring us incredible peace. And not only is there hope for us personally and individually, but then for the world that in the resurrection, we see God's not done with his world. He's redeeming his world. He's renewing all things. And so we have plenty of work to do and let's get to work and be about the Lord's work, but we can rest and sleep well at night because of the promises of Christ and the power of his resurrection and the peace that he gives us. And I think in light of this, it's it's just wild to me that sometimes as Christians, we can be some of the most agitated and angsty people out there, can't we? Even as Christians, we can be easily offended and grumpy and we complain about whatever's going on in the world whatever ruffles our feathers. I mean, too many people, let's be honest, bearing the name of Jesus or acting a fool on the internet, right? You've all seen the videos. I don't have to cite sources, but you can go. There's, there's stuff out there, okay? And it's, it's tragic in light, of, in light of this word of peace, right? Shouldn't we of all people be the most uh, peaceful? Shouldn't we of all people be peacemakers? Shouldn't we of all people be the most uh, eager to, to rest, to overlook an offense, to be quick to forgive, quick to reconcile, not get worked up and uppity about every little thing. Now I'm not advocating for apathy. Yeah, let's be engaged. Let's uh, be devoted to good work in the world. Absolutely. Well, let's do so with a rest and a sense of deep trust in who God is and his sovereign plan. And that that might be seen in our posture and how we carry, carry ourselves. So Jesus brings us a word of peace. There's more though. Look at verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. Verse 21, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. So the next point, Jesus calls us to mission, not retreat. He brings us peace and he calls us to mission. The risen Jesus Brings a word of rest, but also, hey, we got work to do, right? So off off we go. As the Father has sent me, he says, verse 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In the same way the Father sent me, I am sending you. Think about that. Remember how the Son was sent. Jesus came to us. This is what we remember in the the doctrine of the incarnation. Can you say that with me? Incarnation. We remember this at Christmas time. John chapter one tells us that Jesus is the word made flesh, eternal God taking on humanity and walking among us, moving into the neighborhood, drawing near to us, leaving the comforts of heaven to seek and save the lost, coming to give his life as a ransom for many, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so as the father has sent me, he says, I am sending you likewise to what? Go and leave your comfort behind and leave your convenience for the sake of reaching the world with the gospel. Worship, connect, grow and go. We're sent out in the name of Jesus on mission to share the gospel and love our neighbors. You see this, the mission is brought out here in verse 22 and 23. It says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, these verses can be confusing at first glance, right? For a number of reasons. Um, first, it sounds like it's saying you have the power to grant or withhold forgiveness. And so people better not mess with you because boom, give me that salvation card back, right? I can take it. It kind, of sounds, it kind of reads that way at first, and that's problematic for a number of reasons. That's not, I think, what the text is trying to tell us. at uh, First, because God is the one who forgives. We know this to be true. And so most scholars and commentators will see this as speaking to our, our role as the church in proclaiming the gospel. And so as the church goes forward, we share the gospel, the message of Jesus, and some will hear it and repent and believe, and they'll be forgiven but some do not repent, do not respond. They reject it and remain unforgiven. And so the church then our role is to declare the message and the reality that apart from Christ, we all stand unforgiven. And so the mission is then to make disciples, proclaim the gospel, proclaim forgiveness of sins in Jesus name, call men and women to believe. Now the other piece here that's confusing is the reference to the Holy Spirit. See that in verse 23? It says, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now that might not be completely confusing because reading through the gospel of John, we've seen the promise of the Holy Spirit, haven't we? Back in John 14 and 16, Jesus says he'll send his spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, the advocate to come to us, to be with us, to indwell us, to guide us, uh, followers of Jesus after he is gone. And so it kind of makes sense that here at the end of the gospel of John, we see this reference to the Holy spirit, but it's also kind of confusing because if we know the rest of the new Testament and we zoom out a little bit, we're like, wait a minute. I thought the Holy spirit came in acts chapter two at Pentecost. Isn't that right? When the Holy spirit came upon the church and empowered the church and sent the church out on mission. That's really what we look to as, as the birth of the church, acts chapter two at Pentecost when the spirit falls And there's explosive growth in ministry as the church is empowered for mission. But that wasn't until nearly two months after the resurrection. And so we're like, well, what in the world's going on here then? The night of the resurrection, right? The math doesn't quite add up. And so commentators are kind of split between what to do with that. Some will say then whatever's happening here in John chapter 20 is purely like symbolic. It's purely a reference to what is to come. And so he breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit, but nothing, nothing actually happened there. It was all just like symbolic pointing ahead. Some people go that route. Other people say, no, this is John kind of like reworking the story. And this is John's version of Pentecost. And this is him just kind of like fast forwarding a little bit and kind of slamming the story saying, oh yeah, it all happens here. And this was the coming of the Holy Spirit um, in full. And I think that view is problematic for a number of reasons. Um, but so I think likely, those are kind of two extremes. I think what's happening is somewhere here in the middle, that something meaningful is happening here. The disciples are in some sense receiving an empowering uh, of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of the Spirit with them. And yet I think the fullness of the presence of the Spirit was to come at Pentecost as the church is empowered. So something meaningful is happening here. But I think John's point in the context is to highlight the necessity of the spirit for the mission, right? That's the context, I'm sending you out, but I'm not sending you alone, right? That's the idea, the Holy Spirit will go with you. The whole church is to take the whole gospel to the whole world, we worship, connect, grow, we go, but we don't go alone. We go in the power of God's presence and his spirit this is important because I remember back in seminary, I was listening to this, I forget if this is a sermon or a podcast by a pastor, and he was talking about how today we can kind of grumble as Christians or as pastors and lament how hard it is uh, to get someone to follow Jesus or how hard it is to, to make disciples of Jesus. Ministry is so tough today. There's all these cultural factors that that work against the church and people coming to Jesus, whether it's. Technology or distraction or religious pluralism or secular views on sex or whatever else or TikTok or kale propaganda or you know, you name it. There's all these things that get in the way and make it hard for people to come to Jesus. Look, woe is me, look at how difficult it is for us. And the pastor's like, you know, look, it has gotten zero percent harder to make disciples today. It's zero percent harder. Then it's, everyone. it's not any harder today than it has ever been to make followers of Jesus because it has always required a miracle to see someone saved and follow Jesus. It's always required a miracle, a work of the Holy Spirit to have someone follow Jesus. You're a, if you're a Christian today, it's a miracle. I don't care what family you were raised in or you went to church when you were little. I don't, it's a miracle that you're a Christian. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit that your heart, which was dead, has been made alive by the power of God. And your eyes, which were blind and closed, were opened. And your heart, which was hard, again, was softened by the love and grace of God. And you repented and and walked with Jesus. That's a miracle of the Spirit. And that's still what it requires today. Is the, the Holy Spirit moving in power as the gospel is preached to soften hearts and bring people to repentance and salvation. And so it's only more difficult today if we think it's up to us. If we think on like a human level about us, you know, it's about, it's up to us and how clever we are and how creative we are to really, you know, you know, bring people in. It's always been about the power of the spirit empowering the mission. And the same remains true today. So we go and we, we work hard and we pray and we, We act and we invite and we love our neighbors. We share the gospel and we show up and we realize all along that it's only by the power of God and in his spirit working that we have any hope of impact and transformation at all. So Jesus brings us peace. He calls us to mission. And There's one more. One more shift. Verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Oh, Thomas. Brother Thomas, what do we think of Thomas, church? I don't know, do we like Thomas? Thomas. Are we disappointed in Thomas? Can we relate with Thomas? Sometimes he's called Doubting Thomas, right? Poor guy. It's a pretty bum nickname to have, you know, throughout eternity, Doubting Thomas. He hears about the appearance of Jesus from the other disciples and his response is, no, unless I see, unless I touch the wounds with my hands, I will not believe. I don't know. I I think it's a pretty reasonable response. You know, I think if that was me, I I might say the same thing, right? Like, this is a pretty miraculous claim, guys. I'm I'm gonna need to, you know, know, throw me a bone here. I'm gonna need to see a little little evidence. Um, I would probably say, Thomas, I get it. Maybe you can relate with Thomas. And we see how Jesus responds. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus appears again to his disciples shows up in the locked room again, says, peace be with you again. And he turns to Thomas and he says, see my hands, reach out, touch my side. And he calls him to believe. So the last point is Jesus invites us to believe and not not doubt. Now I think there's a lot of us today that have questions, right? And can be skeptical. And I think we can bring those questions to the Lord. We can bring those questions and doubts to church. We need to talk about those things. If they're in our hearts, we need to process them. We need to, I would love to talk with you. If you have questions, if you're here with a friend, the family member, I'm sure they would love to talk with you. If you have questions. So we're not called to blind faith. Ah, keep quiet, just believe. No, because even with here, Jesus, he doesn't scold Thomas for not believing right? He just, he shows him the evidence. So here, you asked, here I am, time to believe. So he doesn't scold him or shame him, or say pipe down. No, he, he shows up and here's the evidence. And so we all reach a point, I think, where we know enough to respond. Where we might not have all our questions answered, but we reach a point where we've heard enough, seen enough that we're able to make a choice. And, and believe and follow. And so if we have honest questions, bring them, bring the questions, study and read, let's dig in and let's, let's learn together and talk through them. But sometimes we reach a point where the questions are no longer genuine questions and they're kind of just used as a stiff arm to not have to respond, right? you ever been there or maybe, maybe interacted with someone in that place. It's like Jesus calls you to repent and believe and it's like yeah well what about that talking donkey in the old testament huh what about that like yeah okay let's say let's talk about that and but like you know jesus is alive, and he's calling you to believe yeah what about that and you know what i'm saying where it's like we just it's just a stiff arm and we keep like well until all my questions are answered i don't have to do anything i don't have to change i don't have to respond and so we're just going to keep everything at arm's length and that's kind of how the question is used again not everyone's like that but some questions are like that and so the point with, with Jesus here showing himself to Thomas is, hey, there's, there's, there comes a time where Jesus says, hey, stop doubting and believe. Here I am. You've seen enough. You've known enough. You can respond. And I think sometimes the reason we, we doubt to that extent, the reason we want to keep Jesus at an arm's length is that we, we think that's where life and freedom is found. If I follow Jesus, then I'm gonna actually surrender to him. I'm gonna have to do things his way and I'm gonna lose my freedom and lose my joy and life's gonna be dry, old drudgery. And I don't want that. So I'm gonna just like stiff arm as long as I can and have my fun while I can. And then maybe, you know, eventually I'll throw up a prayer before I die and, and that'll be fine. Sometimes we approach it that way. But I heard a pastor recently, Pastor Mark Clark point out, just really, he made a really good point where he just said, hey, the most... Freeing thing you can do is to let God be God. The most freeing thing you can do is surrender to God. Is to trust Jesus and believe. Trust that God knows more than you do. That's the most freeing thing you can do. The most life-giving thing you can do. Right? Where you can stop trying to be God because let's be honest, we're way underqualified for that position. Right? We're going to say to God, I'm not qualified for your job. I'm not qualified to run the universe. I'm not qualified to run my own life. I'm not qualified to make decisions for myself about what's, what's good and not good. Right? I'm going to trust that you know more than me. And so my questions might not all be answered, but just Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you are good and for me and that you can show me the way to life. And isn't it, isn't that one of the best gifts? I think of uh, my kids. One of the best gifts you can give your children is just to let them be kids, right? And not worry about all the things in the world that you, as an adult or as a parent, have to worry about. Or if you if you have little kids, think about I think about my kids, and I'm like, they don't have to worry about it's like where's where's my next meal going to come from, and uh, you know where how am I going to get to soccer practice? Is there is there gas in the car? Did mom or dad fill up the tank? You know, like they, there's just a whole series of things that they don't even think about. Because they're kids. And it's like, hey, let me worry about that. Trust me that I kind of know how to handle things and you just get to show up and and be a kid and just trust me on this one that i know you know this is kind of a good way to handle this situation and of course it changes as they grow and the illustration breaks down because as they grow they do make choices and they start to handle things on their own but you get the idea that with the lord there's this, this freedom that comes from being like hey my dad is handling that and i'm just going to trust that he knows what he's doing so i don't have to figure out exactly all of the ins and outs myself right i don't have to rewrite the manual myself you can just trust that i can uh, don't have to reinvent the wheel here I can trust that he knows what's best. I think, I mean, you can look to any number of, of statistics and studies recently that point to just the rise of, of anxiety in our modern world, right? We've seen this or maybe experienced this, just the rise of anxiety, mental health issues, depression. It's just, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, the numbers are off the charts compared to just historic rates. And, and I don't, I don't wanna to claim to know the complexity that goes into each situation, um, but, but I can't help but thinking there's some kind of connection between this rise in anxiety and our society's drift from God, right? Yeah, I'm not blaming individual people for the feelings that you feel, I get it, it's, it's complicated, but just there's this water we swim in, right? That just kind of tells us, hey, there's, there's no bigger picture, there's no bigger story, there's no bigger purpose, it's kind of, there's no God looking out for you. It's up to you to like figure it out and be enough and make enough and find enough and have enough. And so, man, you better, you better get to work because it's up to you. You gotta be everything for yourself, create your own meaning. And it's just, it's just exhausting. And it just wears us out. And we think about the, again, what that does to do a society over time. Right? If that's just the air we breathe, the water we swim in. As opposed to if we start to really believe that there, there's a good, loving Father that cares for you, right? that is guiding you, that your life has meaning and purpose. And you can just rest because you don't have to figure everything out. You can just trust Him and He's going to guide you. Again, I'm really clear. I know plenty of Christians who love Jesus and are faithful and struggle with with mental health and anxiety and depression. So I'm not saying that that's not gonna be part of it. I'm saying in our world at large, think about maybe the impact that that has when we remove God from the picture. And we see Thomas respond with one of the strongest statements of Jesus' deity in the New Testament. He sees and he says, my Lord and my God. Verse 28, this, this confession of faith. And really that, it's just, high claim to the deity of Christ, my Lord and my God. Again, one of the the strongest in the whole New Testament showing that Jesus is God himself. And he believes. And that's really what the whole book has been about. That's how the chapter ends, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his, his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life. In His name, It's really like the purpose statement for the book. And here's why it's here. This is written so that you may believe. That you might trust that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And, and not just so that you can like, check a, a box off or pass some religious you know, paper test. But verse 31, that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may have life in his name. You may experience life in Christ, realizing God is for you. He wants you to flourish under his care. Brings you resurrection life as we trust in Jesus. That's where it all starts. And so we have a chance to remember this together as we come to the communion elements. And we do what followers of Jesus have done for uh, generations. We take the elements representing his broken body and his shed blood for us to remember, to worship, to remember our own need before him, to put our trust in him once again, anew this day. We uh, practice an open table here at FBC, which means uh, even if you're visiting, if you're from out of town, in your home church, uh, whatever, um, as long as you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate with us uh, and take the elements together. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll take these together. Lord Jesus, we look to you and we, we believe, Lord, in your resurrection, that you are alive. We, we see your wounded hands, the scar on your side. We believe that you conquered death. You are the Messiah, the son of God, who you say you are. And Lord, we come in, in great humility, aware of our own need, in need of a savior, in need of forgiveness, in need of your mercy and grace. And we thank you for your love. We thank you for your broken body, your shed blood on the cross for us. That's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.